The most famous poem of all time is Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, and it's not particularly close. You've heard it, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and so on. In pop culture, you've heard endless variations on the line, I took the one last traveled by, and that has made all the difference, with my personal favorite variation being Jay-Z's, I drove through the fork in the road and went straight from Renegade, a song that I used to crank in my 1995 Explorer while I delivered pizzas, and man, did I think I was cool. The poem is so famous that a Google search for Robert Frost's The Road Less Taken, definitely not the title of the poem, but sort of close, gets 100,000 more search results than the correct title for the second most famous poem of all time, which I'd never heard of. Word for word, it's been called the most popular piece of literature ever written. People love it because it tells a tale of nonconformity. The person in the poem takes the road less traveled, the dangerous road, and they're rewarded. Except it's not about that. Not at all. It's the most famous poem in the history of the world, and nearly everyone gets the meaning 100% wrong. And I'll tell you why that matters and what it's got to do with your startup after some silky smooth jazz that we haven't played in way too long. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast, and it is so good to be back. We took a few months off to finish and release the Tacklebox Method, a self-paced version of the Accelerator program we've been running for the past six years. All the content from the Accelerator program is recorded and formatted into a Candyland-like path. It should take you somewhere between 6 and 14 weeks to finish, depending on how many hours a week you put in. And at the end, you'll be running a startup. The goal with the Tacklebox method was to maximize every second of time you had to spend on your idea. You show up with motivation and insight into a customer or a problem, and we'll tell you what to do, when to do it, and how. We've got a deal for podcast listeners, which I won't waste time on now, since I know lots of people who listen aren't working on a startup idea and just want to get back to Robert Frost. But if you are interested, head to gettacklebox.com backslash no whisper ideas, all one word, no whisper ideas to see the discount and how long it'll last. You can start building your startup the right way this weekend. Thanks for hearing me out. And now let's get back to Robert Frost. Americans in particular love The Road Not Taken. It lines up culturally with how we think about our heroes and about ourselves. What is more American than the idea that when you take the road less traveled, when you bet on yourself, you can achieve anything? It also fits nicely into our storytelling archetypes. We love looking back and attributing everything to a single decision, good or bad. It ties it all up into a nice little typo. I was watching a movie last weekend where someone in their 60s was talking about a moment in a bar during a fight with their significant other 30 years earlier. They said that that moment changed their life. If they hadn't said those specific words, literally everything would have been different. They chose the wrong path. How Frostian. Unfortunately, Robert Frost's poem is actually about how that line of thinking is complete horseshit. Here's famous poem critic Frank Lentrichia, and don't be fooled by how confidently I just said his name. I had no idea who Frank Lentrichia was seven minutes ago, but I did like his quote that I found on Google, describing the road not taken. It is the best example in all of American poetry of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because Frost wrote the poem as a critique on that type of thinking. He's highlighting the absurdity of it, and it's not really well hidden once you know what he's talking about. The famously less traveled path he previously calls, quote, equal and where, 
and basically says it doesn't matter what path you choose because no path is all that different from any other path and none of them are going to make that big of a difference in the long run. Frost is saying that the subject of the poem attributing their life to that one decision is ridiculous. It's about how it's never one decision that irrevocably changes your life. It's lots of little decisions that build. Or more accurately, it's about the lack of decisions. The paralysis that comes from thinking every decision is potentially the one that your life is going to hinge on that screws people up. In a way, Frost is writing about momentum. Worrying about every decision halts your momentum. The way to live life is to realize that no one decision will ever matter all that much, and the most important thing you can do is make them and keep moving. Decision making is a skill, and you got to get good at it. I see this type of thinking constantly with the startup ideas people pursue. They're terrified to make progress because progress requires lots of decisions, and they agonize over each one because of how important they think they are. The reason I started Tacklebox way back in 2015 was because people misunderstood so many things about startups. Not that I was some crazy genius at the time, but I've been in the startup game for a while and I realized a lot of what people thought was important was the type of stuff that Robert Frost is talking about. When successful entrepreneurs tell their stories, they do it through the Robert Frost lens. They look back and they overvalue decisions they made, connecting dots in reverse that make the whole thing more dramatic. Had I never gotten that job in marketing or never hired that head of growth or never found a CTO before I quit my job, my startup would have never blah, blah, blah. And it's not like they're lying or intentionally doing this. It's absolutely tough for entrepreneurs to identify what combination of things actually worked in hindsight and how much weight to assign each of those things. But that doesn't make it any less harmful. Because when I speak to entrepreneurs, they see things like, well, this startup that raised $200 million said on how I built this that no one should pursue a startup idea without a CTO on board, and that was the most important decision they made, so I'm not going to start until I have one, or some version of that. So potential founders put off the decision to start. Decision paralysis has killed far more startups than lack of funding or a CTO could ever dream of. Today, I want to talk about the antidote to this, the growth mindset. If you haven't read Carol Dweck's book called, not surprisingly, The Growth Mindset, do it now. Like, stop the podcast and read it, then come back to me. It's the most important characteristic you can have as an entrepreneur, and it's maybe the most important book you'll ever read. Because while we'd love to all be perfectly positioned to start the business that steals our hearts, and I even say it when I'm considering investing in a company or working with a company that I'd love for it to feel like that entrepreneur has subconsciously been preparing to start that particular startup their entire life. It's not always how it works. Sometimes you aren't prepared to start the business you'd like to. And the right path isn't to sit and wait and try to seek out that one decision that's going to magically prepare you like a CTO or whatever else. That's not going to happen. It's to start and build momentum and to make decisions fast and furious, to grow. Movement and momentum will change everything. To put my money where my mouth is, we'll talk about momentum for an idea I am woefully unprepared to start, and it begins with my absolute fascination with a relatively new industry, vertical farming. I have no business doing anything in the vertical farming space. I have zero background or experience, no scientific base, no agricultural base, no real estate, no horticulture base. I've got nothing. But I freaking love vertical farming solely for the potential. It feels like a true paradigm shift, and there aren't that many of those. 
You can grow stuff without pesticides. You can do it without taking up half of California to grow avocados and almonds using obscene amounts of water in the process. You can feed growing populations using less land, less water, and avoiding all of our new shiny, unpredictable weather patterns. It'll likely be a bit messy, and all babies are certainly cute, but I just don't see a world in 10 years where farming looks like it does today. And I think vertical farms are going to play a big part in that. You might find yourself with similar excitement about a different industry, a state that I lovingly call fascinated and unqualified. Maybe it's blockchain or NFTs, but you're a brand marketer at UPS. Maybe you think tech in Africa is the biggest growth opportunity of our generation, but you're a barista in Michigan. What do you do? You build momentum. You look for the path that creates the most new paths for you immediately. You make decisions fast so that you can keep moving forward. The first step that I took was to get a big piece of paper and write down all the things that excited me about vertical farms. It turned into a list of ideas. Vertical farms on city roofs, a giant facility in Kentucky wherever there's cheap real estate that has vertical farms that can then deliver products anywhere in the U.S. in under 24 hours. Vertical farms in food deserts. Vertical farms to feed fish in fish farms and to feed livestock. Vertical farms is a consumer play. Smaller units sold for suburban kitchens or basements. Vertical farms that can supplement existing farms in upstate New York or can maximize their output. There are about 20 more, but you get the point. Because as I look at that list, I realize that I'm really not well positioned for any of those just yet, which we kind of already knew. But in my excitement, I forgot the number one rule of Tacklebox, never build a solution in search of a problem. So I did what I'd suggest you do. Figure out the intersection of a problem you've got unique insight into and whatever you're excited about. You're finding the intersection of your personal Venn diagram. I'll link to our theory of personal Venn diagrams in the show notes if you aren't familiar, and vertical farms or NFTs or blockchain or whatever. As I look through my list of ideas, it's clear that I don't really understand any of these underlying problems any better than anyone else does. For example, vertical farms to feed fish and livestock. It seems interesting, and you probably nodded your head when I said it, because what's going into livestock and fish is what ends up going into us. Plus, the crops that support cows take up an enormous amount of land. But what do I really know about selling to farmers or the problems that they have? I'm sure there are higher-end, super-organic farms that might be interested in pesticide-free food at a premium, but have they already got that sorted out? What would my value be? They aren't going to care if my solution is innovative. They're going to care about how it fits into their business, which I know nothing about. So one option is to just start learning everything I can about their businesses, which I could do. I could start with industry reports and then just start cold calling farms. I'd probably start by going to the higher end organic restaurants, assuming that they buy from farms that care about what they feed their livestock and start getting those farm names and cold calling. But the problem needs to lead and the solution should really get pulled out of a specific problem that you understand. I call this problem hunting and it's a mindset. You need to search for painful, urgent, frequent, expensive problems, then learn about the customer that has them and then solve it for that customer. The person who will win is always the one who understands the problem and the customer the deepest, so it'll be way easier to solve problems you already have a deep understanding in. And as I was thinking through this podcast, it reminded me that there is a problem that I understand that's adjacent to vertical farming. This might be my opportunity to test it out. My fiance and probably wife by the time you listen to this has a gluten allergy. 
gluten allergies have spiked in the last decade or so. Most people blame millennials for being soft or something, but a much less silly explanation is that pesticide changes in wheat farming have caused this heightened sensitivity. I've heard from a number of friends with gluten allergies that they can eat wheat in other countries. They eat pizza and pasta when they go to Italy with no problems. And a widely held belief is that Italy doesn't use pesticides like we do. That problem is massive. There are tons of gluten-free pastas emerging, but in my dad's lingo, they're only, quote, good enough for government work. You don't win friends with cassava pasta. So if the pesticide thing is true, vertical farms growing wheat could make delicious pasta and pizza dough that gluten-free people could eat. Momentum is just making a decision and going full speed towards it. Making the decision is the hardest part, and now I've made it. I can then organize everything around that decision and the assumptions that it carries. So the assumptions are that pasta from wheat grown in vertical farms would be safe for gluten-free people to eat, it would be possible to make, and it would be possible to sell. There's also the belief that people with gluten allergies would trust me. I can start learning and testing all of these assumptions, and most importantly, this would be my end to learn more about vertical farms. I talked with Tom Eisenman, the Harvard professor and author of Why Startups Fail, in probably my favorite ever episode of Idea to Startup. I'll link it in the show notes. We talked about pivots, and he said that the startups that he studied that succeeded all got to five pivots before they really took off. This initial direction will start getting me to my first. So where, specifically, do I start? Okay. I've heard of Bowery Farms. It's a vertical farm startup that sells lettuce and other produce in Whole Foods. The founder is apparently a second degree connection on LinkedIn, and I see he's been on a bunch of podcasts. First, I'll listen to the podcasts. Next, I'll reach out to my second degree connection and see if I can get an intro. And if anyone listening to the podcast knows him, I'd love an intro. Third, I'll realize that there are probably 50 other people at that company that can start giving me background on how to potentially grow wheat so I can just reach out to all of them. Next, some quick online research yielded a study that said that vertical wheat farming has the potential for 600x greater yield than traditional wheat farming. Encouraging. A cold email to Dr. Paul Gauthier, a plant physiologist, which is a thing that exists, from Princeton, who wrote the paper, is on its way. Same goes for Lindsay Campbell, writer for Modern Farmer, who wrote a fascinating article titled, Is the Future of Wheat Farming Inside and Up? I found 20 other people I'd love to chat with and sent each a cold email. There are also podcasts, industry reports, and even a book that I've added to my queue. Am I uniquely positioned to solve this problem now? Not quite. But do I have momentum? And after 15 conversations and 10 hours of reading, will I be significantly closer? Yes. And all those little decisions, those little actions, will open up more and more potential paths for me. Pace of decisions and general direction of decisions is always more important than being precious with your decisions. It's never one decision that'll matter, unless you stress too much over it. Man, it is great to be back. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. Subscribe, rate, share with a friend, and give a holler at brian at gettacklebox.com if you've got questions. See you next week.